Welcome to the podcast that shares the views of high-level leaders in the European and global financial services industry. Welcome to Shaping Finance, a podcast which offers a platform to high-level decision makers and shapers in international finance. My name is Nicolas Maquel. I'm the CEO of Luxembourg for Finance and the host of this podcast. I am joined today by Jean-Claude Juncker, a man who certainly doesn't need much of an introduction, as he is probably the most widely known Luxembourger. Mr. Juncker was the president of the European Commission from December 2014 until 2019. Before that, he had been prime minister of Luxembourg for a whopping 18 and a half years. He's also widely considered as one of the fathers of the euro, as he was one of the architects of the Maastricht Treaty. It was thus not astonishing that he was chosen as the first elected chairman of the Eurogroup, a position he held from 2005 until 2030. His political life spanned several crises, in particular the global financial crisis. Thank you, Mr. Juncker, for taking the time to share your views with our audience. What lessons do you think need to be drawn from the current crisis? I would say all the lessons which have to be drawn should be drawn, not in decades or half centuries, but immediately in the short run. The crisis we are facing is a poly crisis because it's a health crisis, of course. It's a pandemic crisis, yes. It's an economic crisis, economic crisis having been entailed by the health. Uh, crisis and it's a political and social crisis if um, we cannot uh, bring together all the elements we need to deliver a proper answer when it comes to the uh, social consequences because unemployment is still um, going upwards. We were able in the year during my mandate in Brussels to bring the unemployment down from I don't know how much to the lowest level we have ever registered since uh, the figures are collected. So we have um, to um, address all these issues. At the very beginning of the crisis, the reaction of the European Union was quite weak, modest, unambitious, because uh, the reactions were nation-driven and and did not take into account the entity we are in, that means the European Union and the Commission has taken the uh, reaction building in its uh, hands. And now things are going better because the uh, European Commission has been asked to uh, order the vaccine on the European level, which is uh, quite a step, which had to be taken by difference to the timid reactions uh, the European Union has shown at the very beginning of uh, the crisis. So this will be a multifold answer. And more generally, Europe has always made most progress in times of crisis. Will Europe progress during this crisis and what will be the milestones achieved with this crisis? Will we ever see a fiscal union in the European Union? I know that people are very often saying, proving that progress needs a crisis to be uh, fighted and uh, 
it is true that uh, the European Union progresses from crisis to crisis. The fact is that since I'm trying to be active uh, on the European level, that's by the end, of, I was starting by the end of 82, the European Union was always in crisis. I don't remember a day without a real crisis or a crisis mood or a crisis atmosphere. So we are used um, to that. Uh, now in this, in the margin of this crisis or at the heart of this crisis to, to be seen, uh, the European Union recently during the December uh, summit uh, has uh, progressed as far as the fiscal union is uh, concerned because um, the heads of state and government were putting into place a system of uh, collective uh, shouldering of the consequences of the crisis, this famous recovery fund, 750 billions, which is uh, quite a figure, but which is less impressive than it uh, seems if we are comparing this to um, previous uh, efforts which had to be uh, delivered. It's huge, yes, but it's not as huge as that, but it is sufficient because I think that in this recovery package, on the condition, the money which is at our disposal will be distributed in a proper way, which is not for uh, sure. The, the total amount is uh, sufficient. And it's, to some extent, a step without precedent, because for the very first time, that is seen as nothing worse, but is seen as something positive if the money is distributed in a proper way that means uh, dedicated to future-oriented investments and uh, to bring to an end the already existing uh, weaknesses uh, we do see in Europe because we don't spend enough for uh, research and development. I'm sad that uh, the proposals of my own commission going back to 2018 have not been take, uh, taken into account for the total amount we had foreseen as far as research and development is concerned, they were reduced. Funds were reduced as far as public health is concerned, which is amazing at this uh, period in, in, in time. Money dedicated to defense has been reduced. All the future undertakings, which will write the history of the future, have been uh, treated, I have to say, with uh, a kind of um, uh, future benign neglect. Talking about the future, uh, you yourself had launched the Juncker Plan several years ago, and this plan has shown the importance of finance as a force for growth. Is it a success? And with the turn towards green finance and social finance, do you believe finance can even be a force for good? I think that the uh, so-called Juncker Plan was a success because it's nearing a total investment amount, investment generated by the so-called Juncker plan of around about 600 billion, which has to be compared with the 750 billions of the recovery plan. And um, the amazing thing was that uh, only small amounts coming from the European budget have been mobilized. The rest, remaining part, is private uh, investment. That was uh, the starting point, not enhancing, not augmenting uh, 
public debt and deficit in uh, in Europe, but combining small amounts of the European budget together with uh, the creativity of the um, private uh, sector. It was a success. The proof is that it is no longer called Juncker plan, but now it's the European Fund for Strategic Investment. Those who thought it would be a total failure at the very beginning, in November 2014, agreed amongst themselves to call this instrument the Juncker plan because they thought it would be a total failure. Now it has been a success, so it has changed its name, but not its destination and not the underlying reasons which uh, led the European Union to launch this uh, investment plan. Now, the uh, modern tempo is pointing to the direction of green and to a small extent to, to social. I do think that greening European investments is the right choice uh, uh, to be made and to take better into account the social elements of uh, what the uh, European future will be about is uh, the right thing uh, to be done. Let us change subject. Um, with the election of Joe Biden, will that bring calm to the tensions between the US and China? And how should Europe position itself in this triangle? We went through a difficult transatlantic period during Donald Trump's time in, uh, in office. I had good relations with him, by the way. But in Europe, I was amongst the only ones who were able to build up a trust relation with uh, Donald Trump, which allowed me to stop this, as the French would say, this drôle uh, de guerre in the trade area because he uh, abandoned his ideas to impose tariffs on European cars and things like uh, that. But anyway, uh, the uh, European Union and uh, apart some uh, individual countries, like Hungary and, and so on and so forth, the result was perceived without any kind of uh, deeper uh, disappointment uh, because the atmosphere will improve. I know Joe Biden from the past when he was a vice president. I met him several times during his time as vice president and uh, later on in my uh, capacity as president of the commission. No, the atmosphere has changed. Uh, Biden is uh, a multilateralist. He's not co-shouldering multilateralism as Donald Trump did. So um, at the beginning of this new relation between the States and the European Union, things are in place to uh, see these uh, relations developing in the best way possible. But we should not make the mistake to consider that now we are going back to good old times. This will not uh, happen in the relations between the US and China. Nothing dramatic will change because Biden was always very skeptical when it came to uh, the trade relations between the US and uh, China. I don't think that he will change uh, the uh, US attitude, at least in the short term, uh, towards uh, Russia. He likes the European Union. He understands how the European Union is working, although this is very difficult to be understood, but it's strictly unexplainable to those who are not living inside the European Union, even to those who are living inside the European Union. But uh, okay, um, we have a new chance. And I think that this chance, uh, this chance has to be used by both sides and by the US and by the European Union.
in the best interest of the two partners, both sides of the Atlantic. By the time that this podcast will air early January, Brexit will have become a reality. But only a couple of days before when we record, we don't know yet no. which way it will go. Will our future relations continue to be defined by the animosities that characterized the last four and a half years? Do you believe Britain will come knocking at the EU's door and if so, in how many years? And what message do you have for British listeners? Independently from the final outcome of what we call the trade agreement between Britain and uh, the European Union, uh, Brexit is a reality. It's a reality in our minds. It's a reality in our undertakings. And so whatever will happen, Britain will be a third state when it comes uh, to its relations with the European uh, Union. I think that, uh, nevertheless, we should not uh, react on, as European Union on the basis of, how could I say, revenge. The British have taken their responsibility. It's a wrong decision. It's a historic uh, decision, whereas others are knocking at our doors to become members. Britain is leaving the European uh, Union. And the fact that the referendum turned out at the Third was of no surprise to me, because uh, since uh, the British are there, they, they never felt at ease inside the uh, reality and the atmosphere of the European Union. They joined for strictly economic reasons. That's the reason why they were uh, pushing for enlargement as soon as uh, possible. That's the reason why they did not introduce transitional periods when it came to the freedom of movement of uh, workers, but they never felt at ease. And they let us know, not only from time to time, but on a permanent basis. So nobody should have been surprised if you are telling your people that the European Union, in fact, is bad. A little bit in the Trump way, the European Union has invented against us, as Donald Trump was saying. The British were saying the European Union has not been invented for us, and they never uh, played a... Uh, constructive role in the way that they tried always to escape to any kind of further integration of the European countries inside the framework of the uh, European Union. I don't think that the British will knock at the door of the European Union in the next two or three decades, because this uh, feeling not at ease in the European Union will stay as a uh, rooted element of the British attitude towards the European uh, Union. But I don't like the decision of the British, but they have taken their decision. Did they know what responsibility they were taking? I don't think so. Because the uh, outcome of all this will be uh, at a higher cost for Britain than for the European Union. We will suffer. Damage will be uh, on the level of the European Union, but not to an extent than the one the British will experience in the next coming uh, 10 or 15 years. And before we conclude, let me ask uh, one question on populism, which has defined much of this decade. Do you see it as a direct consequence of the global financial crisis? If so, should we expect 
a continuation or even a rise of populism as a result of the current crisis? Difficult to say. I don't think that uh, the uh, populism we had to face uh, during the last decade is only related to uh, the financial crisis and to all this global crisis we were going through. What was happening as far as the rule of law is concerned in Poland and in Hungary had no relation at all with the financial crisis. The financial crisis didn't uh, create an impact on Poland and Hungary in a way that populism should have been uh, developing as it, as it was. Uh, so there, is, there are reasons for populism independently from what is happening in the economic uh, field, I mean. The fact that uh, people didn't understand the financial and economic crisis of the uh, eight, nine, tens of this century, the fact that nobody did really understand what was happening in Greece and how the European Union tried to react to the so-called Greek crisis, the fact that um, the pandemic crisis was adding uncertainty to already existing uncertainties, relations with the uh, US, they were bad, difficult uh, uh, events on the immediate uh, borders in the direct periphery of the European Union, Russia, Turkey and others, all these uncertainties of course are creating a, uh, an atmosphere and reality where populists who are putting sometimes the right questions without delivering uh, proper responses to that is explaining populism. And the fact is that traditional parties from all the uh, areas, left and right combined, very often had a tendency to imitate populists, to say exactly the same things, instead of saying exactly the opposite when there was sufficient room for uh, saying the opposite, is explaining why the theories of uh, mainly the extreme right uh, were more and more welcomed by, a, by peoples confronted with uh, growing uh, uncertainty. So it will take some time. Those who are in favor of the European Union and those who are representing traditional political uh, families, they have it in their hands not to imitate the populists and the extreme right, but to block them and to stop them. And then last question, as you are somebody who loves to read and is surrounded by books, what book have you recently read that you would like to recommend to our listeners? I, I'm a, a curious uh, guy, a uh, curious reader guy, if I can express myself that way around, because I'm reading in parallel more than one book. And uh, But I'm mainly focusing now on the memoirs of Jean Monnet. Why? I had read them. I was reading them. I had read them years ago. But now I wanted to rediscover his attitude towards Britain because he was living in Britain, he was very British friendly, he was defending the membership of Britain, his committee for the Union of the European People was always in favor of the British accession to the then economic European community. But he said, 
that's exactly the point where I have arrived right now. He didn't say don't trust, but he said be careful. Because whenever the British are joining a club, they want this club to play with their rules. And they are only seeking their own interests. It has been proved in recent years. Thank you very much, Mr. Juncker, for sharing your insights with our audience. Thanks also to our listeners who have tuned in again to our podcast. In our next episode, I will have the honor of speaking to Cynthia Tobiano, Deputy CEO of Bank Privé Edmond de Rothschild. To stay up to date with our podcast, please feel free to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or Google. You can also find more information on our website, luxembourgforfinance.com. <laughs>